All right. Man, that's a good way to transition into the Word, huh? Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. We are still at it in this amazing chapter, this hall of faith. Uh, Just such a, a powerful, condensed portion of scripture, Jeff and I have just said, you know, it's one of those things that you can read through the chapter in just a matter of minutes, but it would take months, if not years, to mine all that's there in the lives and stories of the people who followed after God. I want to remind you of a statement at the very beginning, chapter one, maybe many of you could just quote this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In the Christian Standard Bible, it translates it this way, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, not wishful thinking, and the proof of what is not seen. When I read about faith and I consider what this chapter says to us, I think it says as much to us about faithfulness as it does faith. So faith is always, real faith is always accompanied by obedience. So faith and obedience together is faithfulness. And all in all, here's a definition I'd like to give you today uh, of faithfulness. It's the mark of an ultimately secure future made on an uncertain present. The mark of an ultimately secure future made on an uncertain present. How many of you had a dad who understood biblical faith the way I just described it, intentionally explained that faith to you, and then modeled a way of life kind of faith where you could kind of see it everywhere? You don't have to raise your hands. I just want you to think about that. How many of you had a dad who did that for you? Many of the men in here are dads, and some of the men in here might be aspiring dads. So let me ask you a question as well. How many of you would say that you clearly understand, you could articulate biblical faith? And not only that, how many of you have a plan, not just a hope, not just a maybe someday I'll get to this, but you have a plan to intentionally share that faith with your children or maybe the next generation if you don't have children of your own. And how many of you would say that by grace, through faith, you are attempting to live a life of faith? In every aspect of life. Not perfectly, but faithfully. I'm asking because one of my lifelong friends lost his dad on Thursday. And here's the real tragedy. He and I have talked a lot about our dads over the years. The real tragedy is he has been grieving the loss of his dad for most of his life. And I can relate to that. I've been estranged from my dad for over 10 years. And I have felt the pain of 
the absent father wound, if that's what you want to call it. We call it that in men's fraternity for most of my life. Both of our dads, I I believe, did what they thought they ought to do. But both of them left out the absolutely most crucial, vital, essential thing that a dad could ever do. And that is impart their faith to their children. That's, it's, not a, it's not just sort of an inspirational idea. It's not just sort of something that might be nice if it happens. It is the thing biblically understood that a dad is to do with his children. The National Fatherhood Initiative suggests that there is a father absence crisis in America. Now, this is outside the church, but probably inside the church as well. Over 18 million kids live without a biological, a step, or an adoptive father. And the outcomes for that, just from a statistical perspective, aren't great. It's heartbreaking. But God's vision for fathers is way beyond physical and emotional presence, as important as those two things are. Here's what God says a father is to do in the words of the message. Take your children by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. Raise them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's the way it is in the ESV. So no amount of money or attention or prestige or affirmation or care. Again, all wonderful things, right? None of that can ever compensate for a deficiency of faith. That's the one thing. That matters most. Remember, just a couple weeks ago, we were told by the writer of Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to do what? Is there anything more important in life than pleasing God? So, if a father and moms, this is not in any way diminishing your influence, okay? So, please hear me. And I realize I'm a month early on Father's Day, (laughs) I couldn't help myself. But if a dad doesn't give his faith to his kids, then he is setting them up for cataclysmic failure, not only in this life, but in the next, if they don't find it some other way. So, today we're going to look at a passage about the faith of the patriarchs, the fathers of Judaism. And we are going to learn what it's like to be a father of the faith. We're in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. We're learning about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And this little portion is pointing us back to what Jeff covered last week in verse 13, where it says, these all died in faith 
these and many others, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. That's going to be consistent with all of these. These are the heroes of the faith. And we said a couple of weeks ago that heroes of the faith do four things. They take God at his word. They do what they're told. They resist the ways of the world. And they endure the cost of faithfulness regardless of how high it might be. So let's look at these four fathers. And here's my hope. If you don't have one, you'll find one here today. That these men can be a father in your life. And they can inspire a faith in you that you desperately need today and next week and next year until you take your last breath. And if you want to be a father of the faith, here's your model. Here's what it looks like. The first man uh, we're introduced to is considered the pinnacle of faith. Not because he lived perfectly, but because he lived faithfully to the end. He also was probably given the most difficult faith assignment ever given to a man of God in this world. This is Father Abraham. Don't you want to sing the song? Uh, the writer of Hebrews is pointing us back to Genesis 22, and here's what he says in chapter 11, uh, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. It probably should catch our attention that Abraham was tested. And we should also remember that he was tested, not tempted. James tells us that God is not himself tempted in any way and tempts no one. This idea of testing is to uh, learn the true nature of something or to reveal it. In the case of a, a test of faith, it's an opportunity to demonstrate authenticity. And testing is a primary tool of transformation. It's just a part of the deal. If you're a Christian, if you have faith in Christ, it will be tested period. That's just part of the process of God's work in our lives. Uh, Jeff encouraged all of us to read 1 Peter last week. Here's what Peter says in uh, chapter 1 of his first letter, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the opportunity to demonstrate its authenticity, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Testing is difficult, no doubt. But it is a prime opportunity to gain maturity for ourselves to cultivate faithfulness in others who get to observe it, and then certainly, finally, to provide glory to the one who gave us faith to begin with. I like what Warren Wearsby says about faith, a faith that cannot be tested, cannot be trusted. And if you think about the relationship between a child and a father, if a child were never to see a father's faith tested where he exercises his faith, it would be hard to trust that there is faith there to begin with. Now, (laughs) from Abraham's story, it is apparent that when it comes to testing, nothing is off limits. There's never a place in our life where we can say, God, you can test me all you want to, but not this. He can literally take anything in our lives and put it to the test. And rather than being fearful about that, because that's what the enemy would love, we can hold that with open hands knowing that we have a good father who loves us and is doing far more than giving us a comfortable, convenient life. He wants to create something in us that cannot be created any other way than through the fires of testing. In Abraham's case, God called for Isaac. Genesis 22, 2. Take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Guys, we've got to understand there was literally nothing more precious in Abraham's life than this boy. Not just because he was his son, but because of all that this son represented. He was the epitome of God's promise, not only to Abraham, but to all who would come after him. That child represented all of Israel, and even beyond Israel, now in our era, all children of Abraham, anyone who has placed their faith in Christ, they are part of this lineage. That's what Isaac represents. And God says, I made a promise to you, I delivered you a boy, and now I want you to kill him. Can you think of any test more challenging than that? Our reflex in those moments is to think about our circumstances, to start doing the math, figuring out how can we do this or that and get around it, contingencies, all that kind of stuff. We are in danger when we look to our circumstances as an indication of whether or not we should obey God. 
Here's what Abraham did. Literally the next day, he got up in the morning, he gathered his supplies, he grabbed his son, saddled up the animals, and headed off to the mountains to obey God. Along the way, can you imagine his boy looks up to his dad and says, Dad, I get that we're going to offer a sacrifice. We forgot one thing. Where's the lamb? And what did Abraham say? Say that again. How did he know that? That's important for us to think about here. Because there wasn't any obvious answer except the boy riding on the donkey. That's the answer. That's all that he knew. And so what he has to do is he has to reconcile the promise of God with the command of God. And he has to say, there must be a way for me to obey God and for him to keep his promises. And so we're told by the writer of Hebrews, you don't see this back in Genesis, except that Abraham's confident, but we learn that he, he goes, okay, I, I can see how God can do this. I can take the life of my son. And because he gave me this son miraculously, remember, Abraham's good as dead. Sarah's womb is barren, and they get a son. If God can do that, he can do anything. He can give me my son back. So I can hold him with an open hand. I can offer him to my good father and trust him with the results. Faithfulness is the mark of an ultimately secure future based on the promises of God made on an uncertain presence. Abraham modeled prompt obedience despite the looming threat of the unknown. And the writer of Hebrews, I think wanted his immediate audience and us now to know if Abraham can do that, then you and I can literally pass any test God might give us. He will make a way. And he will carry you and I through. And the beauty is every time that you and I comply with the will of God, we enter this observatory of God's magnificent power and goodness. And we don't enter into that observatory any other way. If you and I are trying to protect our faith so that it doesn't ever really get stretched, we miss out. And again, I'm not in any way diminishing the stretch of faith. It's worth it. Now, you might think after this experience with Abraham that Isaac had and then probably countless others that, man, he would be uh, rocking and rolling on faith. Um, some commentators have said that he may have suffered from some complacency or entitlement having grown up in an environment where all he knew was faith. I, I think that's possible if you look at Isaac's life 
and all the different choices that he made over the years, but he's our second father of the faith. And all we have from the writer of Hebrews is this, verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. This is from Genesis 26. And again, with all of these guys, we could spend weeks or months uh, trying to explore their stories and their lineages and all of that kind of stuff. But Jacob and Esau are mentioned in this chapter, verse 26 of Genesis. Um, Isaac is attempting to bless one of his sons. Unfortunately, it's the wrong son. He loved Esau. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, maybe some chemistry or he identified or whatever with him, but he wanted to bless Esau. He was told when the boys were born, they were twins, Esau came out first, Jacob came out second, and he and, and Rebecca were told the younger will lead the elder or the elder will serve the younger. So they knew from the beginning that this blessing, this impartation of the seed of faith was going to be passed primarily to Jacob. And yet Isaac gives it a try. He ends up getting deceived by his younger son. And uh, what's interesting about that moment is, and this is where I really believe he exercised his faith. You can imagine when he finds out he's been deceived and he's facing his elder son who's going, where's my blessing? He said, it's done. God has intervened. And this is going to go his way, not mine or yours. It was in that moment, I believe, that he surrendered. And he just said, you know what? This is way bigger than me or my family. This is God's redemptive plan. And so I surrender. The blessing was given, and so it will be. Jacob left with that blessing. And we'll look at him next. I want to make one observation about... Isaac, and uh, it's noted that in Genesis that he was at the end of his life. And so remember, we saw earlier that many of these died not having received the promises. So at this point in Isaac's life, he didn't see all of Israel. He didn't see a nation in the promised land uh, with everything that God had listed with Abraham. He was acting by faith. He was passing on his belief, his confidence that God would do all that he said he would do, even if he didn't do it in his lifetime. That is what he passed along to Jacob. Jacob eventually becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. His sons are those who lead the tribes of Israel going forward. His story is one of the most fascinating in all of Scripture. My goodness, it is just all over the map. He is bold, he's manipulative, he's deceptive, he suffers in some (laughs) 
amazing ways. It's just uh, astounding. But in Genesis 48, he comes to the end of his life. And we're told by the writer of Hebrews, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So we're taken to the end of another father's life. And if you follow the story of Jacob and more particularly Joseph, Joseph is the youngest. Remember, his brothers sell him off to the slave trade. He gets taken to Egypt. They are later reunited. Joseph is one of the most powerful people in all of the world. His brothers are terrified of him. And what does he say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. This test, and we're not talking about a day or a week or a year. We're talking about years of testing. He said God meant all of that for good. And he didn't mean only for his good. He realized God was doing something again far bigger than just his little single solitary life. And so he surrendered to that work and just said, I I see myself as this small part in God's grand redemptive plan. So Jacob is at the end of his life. He is reunited with the son he thought he lost. This is a whole other story, but his firstborn lost his blessing through his own betrayal. And so Joseph gets a double blessing of sorts. Jacob blesses um, Joseph's two sons. Genesis 48, 15, and 16, he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, Bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. And he's not just so that he can be this popular guy forever and ever and ever. He's like, my name represents all that I am and all that I believe. That's what I want to carry on when I'm dead and gone. In them, these boys that I'm blessing, let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into what God had promised originally, a multitude in the midst of the earth, an entire nation of people who trusted God. That's what he is giving to these two boys, a vision for God's promises being fulfilled. I think the thing that struck me about Jacob is uh, despite all of his ups and downs and everything that he faced, here he is at the end of his life and he didn't quit. And this probably isn't very inspiring, but honestly, as a dad, one of my primary aims in all of life was just not to quit. 
Because my dad did. And when you quit, it's over. You don't get another chance to give more. It's like what's lost is lost. And so guys, dads, if you fall on your face, just get up. Get up and give it another try. I can't tell you how many things I started with my kids that were absolute flops. And I just go, well, honey, I'll have to put that one away and try again. I just kept trying. That's all I can claim is I just kept trying. (laughs) And somehow God in his goodness worked through my dependence upon him. And that's always the story. None of us get to brag about what a great this or that we are. The only thing that we can speak of is our utter dependence upon him and his amazing goodness despite all of our deficiencies. Well, last of all, we come to Joseph. His name usually isn't mentioned in the triad, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, But again, um, he is among the the tribal leaders and was incredibly influential in the history of Israel. We're told in verse 22, by faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. As I mentioned earlier, Joseph ends up in Egypt. And that's obviously not in the promised land, right? So in some ways, we can identify with Joseph maybe more so than Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob because each of them at least spent a large portion of their lives in the land that God had promised to Israel. So he is separated and hoping to be restored And he believes that a day will come when Israel will return to the land that God had promised Abraham to begin with. Here he is at the end of his life. And it looks like it's not happening while he's breathing. But here's what he does. He requires those of his household to essentially promise to take his bones with them. When they arrive at the land. He's so confident that he requires them to make a solemn oath to take his bones with them. So he won't get there while he's breathing. But his bones will get there. And that will represent a confidence in the God of Israel that uh, would have inspired a nation. We learn from the writer of Hebrews that these patriarchs saw the promised land and the conferred blessing as representatives, Jeff mentioned this last week, of a better heavenly land which would surpass anything in this world. These were some of the most influential men in all of history, but they were not influential because of what they did in the here and now. 
It was all about what they set their sights on beyond the grave. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Dads, this is your model. You don't have to do it perfectly. You do have to do it faithfully. You do have to stay at it. And you do have to believe God for something that is far bigger than you will ever be. Your aim is to point your kids away from their dependence upon you as their God. To their God. To their creator. To their good father who loves them and has good intentions toward them. If you'll take a minute... I'd love for you to consider the faith of these men. And I think most specifically, I just I feel like this is a, a beautiful message to think about the next generation. And regardless of what your story is, your backstory, and what you did or did not receive, the calling on your life. As a child of Abraham, that's what you're called. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you're called a child of Abraham. So the question is, what will you do with the faith you claim to have? Your calling is to give it away. And more than anything, to the next generation. So that God's people will flourish long after we're gone. Take a moment, prayerfully ask God how he might want you to do that. And if, if you've never done that before, start today. Prayerfully consider that. Father in heaven, we come to you. We're grateful that as we've learned in Hebrews, we have clear, clean access to you 24-7. And you hear our prayers and you know our hearts. And so, Lord, uh, we've talked about the importance of fathers passing on the faith of the Lord Jesus, the gospel to their children. It's so true, but there's every Christ follower is to do as Monty mentioned in 1 Peter 
to lead others to the hand of the master. Lord, help us to be bold and courageous and faithful and true to the superiority of your son, Christ. That we would be looking for and praying for and thinking through and intentional both about meeting with you, learning about you, and then telling others about you to lead them to the hand of the master. There's no greater purpose in life. It's a life-changing event for all of us who know you. We have different models, <laughs> different... Uh, uh, when we come to Christ, we just see the world differently. And so, Lord, I pray for us this morning, a, a missional people with a missional purpose who are actually on mission where we live, work, and play. The legacy we leave is crucial. It's not a legacy of perfection, but uh, in some ways a legacy of priority. What was the priority of that person's life? Although they fumbled and bumbled and stumbled along, uh, Lord, let that be true of, of me. Let that be true of us. I'm grateful for your word this morning that teaches us, exhorts us, comforts us, and gives us a real vision for our lives. We love you, and everyone said, Amen.